you would remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, this morning will be our final message, my final message addressing Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. And I want to begin, uh, after prayer, I'll begin at verse 18 and read down through verse 30, and let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, gracious Father, we come now to your precious word, that word that is a a lamp unto our feet, it's a, a light unto our path. And Father, it lets us know where we are, and Lord, it addresses those challenges and struggles we have. It also shows us where we need to go. And so, Lord, we ask that you would take this word this morning as we, uh, as we address, Lord, those obstacles and challenges of riches. Help us, O oh Lord, ad- address our own hearts, Lord, any greed, any evil, Lord, any unjust ways in us, Lord, come and cleanse us and, Lord, purge them out of us. Wash us and make us clean, Lord. Make us as, as vessels ready to glorify you, Lord, pure and holy in your sight. So come and wash us with your word. Come and, Lord, show us where we are and where we need to go. And help us, O oh Lord, not to trust in, Lord, our possessions, but solely in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin reading at verse 18. And now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. And you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, well, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But those who heard it said, uh, Who can be saved? And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left all and followed you. And Jesus said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come, eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's precious word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, as I have already mentioned, this message this morning will address those obstacles that lay before those who are extremely wealthy and 
well, confronted with everlasting life. But it will also aid us in realizing the challenges that riches bring to the life of a Christian. That is, I don't want you to tune me out already because you say, well, I'm not rich and I've already and already possess eternal life. I already have faith in Jesus Christ. So I can well think about lunch or what I'm going to do this week. That's not the case. For riches are still a challenge to believers and we need to acknowledge that and see that and we need to, well, fortify our spiritual lives against those things. And well, this morning's gonna help us do that. There are three things that I plan to address in this morning's message as we bring this portion of our study of the kingdom of God to a close. The first thing we're going to recognize is a general observation. A general observation. The observation being the proverb that Jesus uses. It's easier for a camel to, well, go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's an observation. And we'll look at that. Second thing that we're going to give our attention to is this idea of the theological truth that Jesus brings to bear on the matter with the disciples. When Jesus tells the disciples, or at least when the disciples express concern over who can be saved, Jesus addresses their concerns theologically. There are, well, Salvation is impossible with men, but impossible with men, impossible with God. We're going to look at that theological truth. And then lastly, we will address the glorious motivation that Jesus uses at the end of this conversation for ourselves to be motivated to continue onward in our walk with Christ. Now, let me say this before I launch into the message and start addressing these points. First, we don't come to this text of Scripture and, and, and we don't want to make the mistake that many make when they come to this, when they come to the teaching of riches. The point of this text is not to pit the rich against the poor. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is to speak to the challenges of the rich. The text is not putting down the rich and building up the poor. That's not the purpose of the text. It's not advocating poverty. As many Christians seem to latch on to. Now, as we begin to notice this observation that Jesus makes, he, again, he makes this observation in the, in the context of this setting, and you can read Matthew's version of this interaction and Mark's version of this interaction in Luke, and you get a clearer, bigger picture, but the rich young ruler has begun to walk away from Jesus. He's rejected it. 
the offer of everlasting life. He's walking away from Jesus. He's denying Jesus. He, 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 he came into this interaction with Jesus believing that he was going to have something added to his life and that he was going to receive everlasting life and yet he's walking away empty-handed, so to speak. But the text tells us that he was very sad in doing so. Well, he didn't get what he wanted. And Jesus watching him walk away now has to contend with the disciples. And the disciples are rather concerned about this interaction. And that's when we see Peter seems to be the spokesman of the disciples. It's not just Peter who has this issue. It's this Peter is speaking on behalf of the disciples that are standing there witnessing and listening to this conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler. So we're gonna take up verse, we're gonna take up our, our place at verse 24, and we're gonna begin working out this outline here. Notice verse 24 it says, When Jesus saw that he became, when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, that's the rich young ruler, he said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? Now, he makes this statement. Now, he's not finished making the point, but he makes this statement. He begins at least addressing the disciples by talking about the challenges that the rich have in embracing everlasting life. And then he follows it up with a modern-day parable. In verse 25, that's the parable, and that's the point of our outline. Jesus uses a parable to bring to what is obvious, what is being observed as an obvious hurdle and obstacle that this rich man has to the kingdom of God. For he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is a parable that is still used today in the Middle East. This is a parable that's even found in the Quran. Even in the Jewish writings, they have this parable, though they've changed the uh, camel out with an elephant and even made it, well, harder. <laughs> but what's the point of a parable? Well, the point here is certainly hyperbole. Hyperbole. Hyperbole, that's the English word, is derivative from the Greek word that means to go far beyond, to go beyond. It's to make an exaggeration. Is Jesus telling us that rich men are never to be saved? Is that what he's saying? Well, we know that's not true. If that were true, we have so many contradictions already in the Bible. That's not Jesus' point. It's a figure of speech. He is making an exaggeration. He is, he is speaking in hyperbole. So in order to, well, to pique the attention of the disciples who are still there so that they might learn something. Now, 
The point of a proverb is, beloved, what is it that makes a proverb so powerful and so meaningful and so useful? Well, because proverbs are built on general observation. You know, they're not... They're not designed, so to speak, to be the searchers of the heart. They're general observations. And they're built on experience. Observation and experience. Now, I used one last week. Remember, there's one that I hear around here quite often. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't force him to drink, correct? I mean, we know that's a proverb. That's a proverb. Now, how was that proverb created? Through observation and experience. Meaning, you can ride a horse, you know he needs to drink, you can take that horse to water, but because he is stubborn, you can't force him to drink it. And we typically use that in relationship to people that we think are being what? Stubborn. Great. Good job, y'all. Just seeing if you're listening. Well, Jesus is again using a modern day parable that they were very familiar with. And of course, it should not have been any, it shouldn't have been a surprise to them because there are half a dozen or better, probably close to a dozen Proverbs in the book of Proverbs that addresses this idea of riches and the, the, the obstacles that riches present to any person, but particularly to those that want to serve God. Proverbs 10, the rich man's wealth is his fortress. Proverbs 10, verse 15, the ruin of the poor is their poverty. Now, I'm going to read some commentary on that in just a second. Uh, Proverbs 11, verse 28, he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Now, both of these Proverbs are certainly making an observation it is a custom. It is certainly reasonable, and it certainly can be observed that rich men often make their wealth what? Their strength. Their strength. That's a common thing. It's, it's observable. We can, even, we can watch it played out on, on the world stage. I think it's telling part of the national problem we have is that many of the representatives that claim to represent the common man are 100,000 times wealthier than any of the common people. And that's a problem. And it's easy to just continue to tax and regulate and tax and regulate when they just don't affect you, when you still have the money to go down and buy a $25 Happy Meal or $10 gas, whatever it might be. But when we look at Proverbs 15, and I want to I be slow enough, but I want to move quick enough in order to certainly address this message this morning to, in your hearing. But notice, the rich man's wealth is his fortress. 
The ruin of the poor is their poverty. Again, poverty is never exalted in the Bible. Poverty is never exalted. And in fact, we have a, a proverbial writer that says, Lord, don't let me be so poor that I would steal and embarrass you. That's a paraphrase. Don't let me be so rich that I would forget you. But don't let me be so poor that I would have to steal and embarrass you. So it's not one or the other. And notice, here's some commentary um, based on Proverbs 10, 15. The commentator writes, he says, rich people think themselves happy because they are rich. That's observable. But it is their mistake. The rich man's wealth is in his own conceit, his strong city, whereas the worst of evils is to speak and utterly is insufficient to protect uh, them from, well, any travesty. It'll prove that they are not so safe as they imagine. Nay, they, their wealth may perhaps even expose them. That means, look, wealthy people can get sick. Wealthy people can have family problems and often do. Wealthy people can have any number of the same problems and issues that just the common, the commoner has. Wealth does not isolate them from these common problems. And they still have to contend with eternity. And of course, there's certainly a, a proverb that addresses that, well, Money will not aid anyone on judgment day. You won't be able to buy the judge off. For God has no need of your money. And God's not interested in your bribe. The second thing the commentator makes is the idea of the poor. You can see the rich often feel, well, insulated, okay, I mean, look, brothers and sisters, let me pause for a minute and just and say this because I think we can all be in agreement here. It's nice to have the money to pay your electric bill. It's nice to have money to buy groceries. It's nice to have some extra money to buy something for a, a, a party for families or church members to come over. It's nice to be able to celebrate and have celebrations and birthday parties and gatherings and whatnot. It's nice to be able to fix the car when it breaks down. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But those things in and of themselves are not one's security or happiness. They are nothing more than the outward blessings, if you will. If you're an unbeliever, those are just these common graces that God allows the world to experience because, well, it's his world and he is God. But even for the Christian, for the Christian right, we should never pride ourselves in those things, even though we enjoy them. Well, the poor have their challenges too. We've already said that. The poor think that they're undone because they're poor, and that's a great mistake. Or that somehow they're despised by God, overlooked, 
or even ignored. The destruction of the poor is their poverty, Matthew Henry says. It sinks into their spirits and ruins all their comforts, whereas a man may live very comfortably, though he has but a little to live on. And if he be content and have a good conscience, he will easily live by faith. You know, I think there are some lessons that can certainly be learned growing up in a, uh, a poor household. I mean, we don't, we don't, do we even use that word anymore? What would be the, the modern uh, day word for, you know, we don't want to talk about poor because that's sort of demeaning, but yet that's what it is. To, to not have an abundance, maybe to have very little. There are valuable lessons that one can learn growing up in a home trusting in the Lord. I'm reminded of the biography of the orphanages, uh, Mueller, George Mueller in England. You know, he was called by God to take this, these rascals off the street. These kids were just dumped out on the street and England was overrun with these poor children. And, and, and the English would walk down the street cursing at the children because, what they, and think about it, the children didn't have anybody to take care of them. A Christian was an English nation. I mean, a Christian nation. So George Mueller began to collect these children and put them up in his house and take care of them and try to give them some clothing and, and food. And, and, and I know I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to do it again. And you know, Charles Dickens was his friend in real life. And Charles Dickens would help him in taking care. And that's one of the reasons Charles Dickens wrote the works he wrote so that he would making aware, he was wanting to put it out there that these children needed people to come to their aid, not curse them and judge them. But oftentimes they'd have nothing. And many times in his testimony, he would sit at the table and he would gather the children together and he'd say, let's pray. And let's call upon God. Let's just glorify his name for what we have. May not be much. And many times when before he finished the prayer, he'd walk to the door, no one would be there, and there would be a box of food on the steps. I've experienced that myself. Of people taking care of a young married couple who didn't have much at all, who just wanted to serve the Lord, we'd come home and there'd be a box of food there on the table, on the steps. There's some valuable lessons that can be learned in poverty. The problem is though, oftentimes, what's a hurdle to a person that's in poverty is their own lack of integrity and well, heart commitment to the Lord. And what do they do? They focus on their poverty and all they do is complain about it. 
They don't see any good in it whatsoever. And so the proverb is correct. The proverb is accurate that the ruin of the poor is their poverty. And we're watching it go on all around us. I don't have what you have, and so I want the government to legislate and take away from you and give to me. So poor people can be very greedy. Poor people can be very, very greedy. The rich, their greed is a little different because they have the power and the means to take advantage of others. The poor, well, they don't have that type of power and influence, so they have this, this heart just consumption and that's why they're ruined because all they think about is what someone else has and what they don't and it's their ruin so brothers and sisters the first thing i want you to walk away with as we begin looking at this proverb jesus is not saying oh oh the rich you don't want to be rich oh you want to be poor he's not he's not juxtaposing he is not in making any comparison what he is saying is oh the challenges of the rich the obstacles that the rich face when coming to everlasting life they're real These are real obstacles. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And Jesus gives this warning. I can't read the whole chapter, but the whole chapter is Jesus certainly setting in front of those going into the promised land and warning them of, well, forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. And um, look at, well, let's see, you can see verse 6 through 10 talks about the good land the land if you will flowing with milk and honey and all of the benefits and all of the blessings of God that'll be poured out upon them in verse 11 he says beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments his judgments his statutes which I command you today lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwelling them and when your herds are your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land and there was no water and who brought water from for you out of a flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know that you might, that he might humble you and that he might test you, what? To, to do you good in the end and then say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand have gained me this wealth. You, you see, God is, is, where does God in this text of scripture like Luke 18, where does God say, don't drink, don't have fun, don't, go, don't live in a beautiful, what, what does he say any of that? He doesn't say any of that. 
what he says is, listen, when you begin to labor and prosper and profit and, and, and move into really nice living conditions, hey, don't forget the Lord. Now, that's the challenge for believers, isn't it? For the unbeliever, it's the stumbling block. You mean I got to give all this up to follow Jesus? I can't do that. For the believer, it's when God begins to prosper us and, and the work of our hands begin to uh, profit in many ways that we begin, what, to be prideful and haughty and we, well, we remind others how clever we are in our business arrangement. We remind others that the strength we possess, well, somehow comes because I get up at five o'clock and I do a 30-minute workout and I, you know, drink three protein shakes a day. Well, none of that's, sleep is no good without the Lord's blessing, okay? The protein shake's fine, but the Lord needs to bless it. You want to exercise? Fantastic. The Lord needs to bless it. When the challenge of being forgetful of the blesser and focus on the blessing Well, so that's the observation Jesus makes. I hope, you can, uh, I hope you can see it was a natural observation that throughout the Bible, I mean, we could go to Job, and, and Job is probably one of the earliest biblical figures that we have in biblical history, if you will. Probably sometime even around before Noah's flood, Job lived, and yet even Job recognizes, he says, how dare I if I ever put my trust in my riches? So it's a problem. It's always been a problem. Ever since the fall of man, ever since man lost his integrity and his fellowship with God, he has pursued other gods, and money is one of the top ones. And that's not the only one, but it's one of the top gods out there. And so Jesus is just making this observation. He's bringing forth the reality of it, and it's still a problem today. It's still a problem today. The rich still have a problem giving up their riches for the kingdom of God. Now, now, let me say this. What we've done today is, is we, haven't, we, haven't, we haven't acted in light of Jesus's treatment of the rich young ruler. No, what we've done today is we've said, oh yeah, you want to join the church? Come on in. We need a new building. If you don't mind, strike a check. You can, we'll baptize your children. We'll bring you in here. If you'll build, help us build this building here, you can be a great Christian. We'll put your name on the, on the church pew. We'll name the, the, the fellowship hall after you. That's not eternal life. What you have to do is forsake everything and follow Jesus. Now, young people, 
That's you. Old people, that's you. That's all of us. Nothing can be between us and the Lord. Nothing. And what Jesus is saying, no, no, no. If you're not willing to do these things, you cannot possess the kingdom of heaven. If you can't come follow me. Now listen, that's the, that's the aspect of that. Now look, we got these, these people can sit in church and there's, there are, there's tens of thousands of people in church across America today. They would rather strike a, a $1,000 check than to follow Jesus. Oh, that's too costly. Now, brothers and sisters, this reality will flow right on into Judgment Day. And there are going to be many, many who say, Lord, I was a church member. Lord, I, I, I even gave money at the missions conference. Yeah, but you didn't follow me. I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You didn't raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. You, you didn't raise your household in the admonition of the Lord. You didn't dedicate yourself to the honor of the Lord. You didn't follow me, Jesus said. I don't know you. And there will be many on that day that will be cast into everlasting darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, let's address this theological uh, point that Jesus makes in verse 27. He says, and he's, of course, addressing the apostles who said, well, who can be saved? And he says, these things which are impossible with men are possible with God. I think I can help you with this in just a few minutes here. Brothers and sisters, what is Jesus? What's this theology that Jesus is talking about? Well, Jesus is addressing the, the reality of the fall of man, the apostasy, the original apostasy of Adam in the garden. That apostasy that Paul identifies in Ephesians chapter two, where he says that we are, what? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were alienated from God and were by nature children of wrath. What does it mean dead? We were dead. Well, what, are we, what were we dead to? We were dead to God because when we, when we sinned in Adam, when Adam ate the tree of the knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he didn't eat the tree. He ate the fruit of the tree. He fell from grace. He fell from that original righteousness and innocence he possessed. And he died to the fellowship of God. He died to righteousness. He died to justice. He died to the integrity that God had created in him. He died to those things and then began to live in the realm of sin. Why? Well, doing things compromisingly halfway or none at all. Same thing we do.
In that original apostasy, Jesus is saying, listen, in that original apostasy, no man seeks after God. No man seeks after me. No man wants to. That's the result of the flaw, of the fall itself. They have apostatized from God. They don't want fellowship with him. They don't go after him. They won't give up their riches. So it's impossible. It's impossible for men to do a spiritual inward work in their own hearts. That's why Jeremiah said, can a leopard change his spots? Can a black man change the color of his skin? No, he cannot. Nor can a sinner change their disposition before God, that God has to do that. So the point being here, brothers and sisters, is this, that not only what's impossible with man, because man does not seek the things of God apart from God's working in him, but God desires to save sinners. Let that sink in. The Bible tells us that Jesus loved the rich young ruler. Jesus was ready to save the rich young ruler. He didn't didn't despise his wealth. What Jesus despised was his trust in his wealth. Go get rid of it. Go repent of this false God and come follow me. And he wouldn't do it. Brothers and sisters, Salvation is possible with God because God desires to save sinners. Jesus came into this world, the scriptures say, to seek and save that which is lost. The Bible also tells us that all who seek him will find him. Which tells us the rich young ruler really wasn't looking. He may have thought he was, but he wasn't. He was self-deceived as Love for riches, when that was brought to light, he he didn't know that he was serving this false God, but Jesus exposed it and it destroyed him. You have to go back and listen to last week's sermon. Started him on that downward spiral of depression. Brothers and sisters, the reason it's possible with God because God... God saves sinners. And God saves rich people when they confess their sins and they put off their idolatry and they turn to Christ. He saves them. And oftentimes blesses them with more. Hallelujah. That's not a testament to the rich person. That's a testament to the grace of God and his is the fullness of God's liberality. Our God, beloved, is generous. Our God is great in love and mercy and blessings. Somehow we think God is stingy. He's not. God is always ready to pour out his blessings. 
James talks about us praying and asking God for wisdom in James chapter one. And, and what is James, what, what's one of the motivations James, use, James uses to spur us to pray and ask God for wisdom when we lack it? He says, because he gives liberally. <laughs> he gives more than you need, God gives Paul writes in Ephesians 3, and he talks about, oh, how God goes far and above in giving answers to our prayers. Well, far above than we even understand. God is not a stingy God. The reason salvation is impossible with men because they naturally hate God, it's possible with God because God wants to save sinners. If God didn't want to save sinners, none of us would be saved. We wouldn't be here. Well, maybe it would be some temple of idolatry. But it wouldn't be with God. The reason we're here is because our God is gracious and giving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would have everlasting life. What has God withheld? Out of his vast riches, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, God gave his son. It's possible. Salvation is possible because God is willing to save. Now the last point of this morning's message quickly is the motivation for us to follow on after Christ. And we see that in verse 28 and 29, it says, and Peter said, we, we, see, we have left all and followed you. Now, I, I would say that, you know, Peter wasn't wealthy. He wasn't abundant in, well, possessions. He was a fisherman, probably lived week to week. But he did follow Jesus. He had a family. We don't know the dynamic there. We were not privileged to that. But he had a family, and so he has gone after Jesus. He has heard the call. He is following after Jesus. And this is the motivation. The motivation is this. And it goes to the point that I just made. That though you think that you're giving up everything to follow Jesus, Jesus says, none of that compares to what you are are receiving and will receive. Let me ask you this, beloved. I could probably spend weeks on this point, but I'm just going to mention it. How much, what's the cost of peace of mind? What's the cost of a clean conscience? What's the cost? What's it worth to you to have the assurance of your salvation. What's that cost? What would you pay for it? What would you pay for a clean conscience? That, here's what I mean by a clean conscience. There's just no way anybody could point a finger at you and go, you're guilty of X, Y, Z. Well, these are things people seek after. 
people numb themselves with drugs and alcohol and, and illicit relationships and all of these other things in order to what? So they don't have to think about their conscience. So they don't have to think about their dark heart. So they don't have to think about all of these things that they don't find, this peace of mind, this assurance of salvation. All of these things, beloved, that are yours in Christ. They're yours in Christ. Money cannot buy that. There is no check that you can write to wash your conscience, but the blood of Jesus can. You can't feed enough homeless to earn your way to eternity of everlasting life. Jesus affirms his liberality, his willingness to not only, not only have you follow him. He didn't say not follow me. He said, no, no, you forsake all and follow me. But I tell you this, whatever you've given up, whatever it is, it doesn't compare to what I will give you beginning in this life and the life to come. It won't compare. Follow me. Follow me. Brothers and sisters, here's my question. I'll leave you with this because I, I believe we've stretched out our time fairly well. Did you not trust Jesus' words? This is a promise. Notice what the text says. Look at verse 29 with me. And he said to them, assuredly, truly, truly, your version may have. Assuredly. What's the point? Jesus is saying, I'm telling you the truth. There's nothing else I can add to this statement in order to enforce it into your mind, into your heart, that whatever it is you have given up is nothing compared to what I shall give you beginning in this life. That peace of mind, that ability to be able to rest in Christ. You know, some people can't rest in Christ. Just constant in turmoil. But the gift of Christ is, Lord, rest in me. I've got this and I've got you. I've got this. So there's a great motivation at the end of this. So here's my closing remarks. Brothers and sisters, it's not wrong for you to prosper from the work of your hands. Not. It's not wrong for you to seek the good things in life. It's not wrong for you to have celebrations with your friends and family. But it is wrong to trust in them. And to allow them to build up in you a false sense of security. Do not neglect the blesser over the blessings. Make it your habit every day to thank God for the smallest things. So, well, Pastor, I don't have anything. You don't. You have Christ. 
You don't have anything? Really? You've got peace of mind, but you don't have anything? You've been washed by the blood of the lamb, but you don't have anything? You've been bought with that which is more precious than gold and silver, but you don't have anything? You have the kingdom of God, but you don't have anything? Begin to correct your thinking and start praising God for the things you have. And beloved, listen to me. Maybe, it may be that the reason God has not blessed you with more because you have not been faithful with little. Okay. Because to whom much is given, much is required. Riches bring added responsibility to a Christian life. And will have to give greater accounts on Judgment Day for the wealth that they've been given. Let us pray. Now, blessed Lord, we have, we want to thank you for this reminder this morning. And we want to thank you for reminding us not to forget you, Lord, that we may enjoy the good things in this life, but Lord, not to the expense of forgetting you and not to the expense of praising you, not to the expense of worshiping you, not to the expense, Lord, where we begin to hoard these things up because our trust and security are in them instead of you. Father, if we're guilty of these things, forgive us and show us, Lord, what we need to do beginning today. But Lord, I pray that any that might listen to this sermon, Lord, or we might give to those that have abundance and Lord, that have always struggled with, with what it is to come to Christ. Lord, Lord, that this message might pierce their hearts. That your word may, Lord, enlighten them and to show them that there's no way, oh Lord, that they can just give money here and there to good causes and earn everlasting life. But they must forsake all and follow you and have treasure in heaven by doing so. Oh Father, come now as we begin to prepare ourselves for the taking of your supper. Come and fill our hearts, Lord, with knowledge, understanding, joy, delight, hope, and encouragement, and faith. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.